Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Tonight's going to be a great night, Lace, and we have Scott Hershevitz joining us, and, and I won't even waste much time, but professor at the University of Michigan, where he teaches law and philosophy, graduated Georgia, got his law degree at Yale, and then goes to Oxford, not Mississippi, the Oxford, as a Rhodes Scholar. He had a clerkship with the Supreme Court with Justice Ruth Bader. Uh, probably most recently well-known as the father of Rex and Hank, the star of his book, Nasty, Brutish, and Short, Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. And uh, Scott, thank you so much for taking time to join us tonight. Thank you for having me. I think that was my favorite intro ever. Well, good. I'm going to make sure I put that in my bio someday. Scott acknowledged uh, and we laughed about Oxford. I said, Layson and I are used to people from Oxford, Mississippi, uh, not the Rhodes Scholar. But let, let me jump in on the role of education. And did you grow up in a house that placed a huge value on the role of education? I did. I um, am the child of a teacher. My mother um, was a fourth and fifth grade teacher before she had kids. And then she taught preschool afterwards. Uh, both of my parents were uh, the first uh, people in their family to go to college. And, uh, you know, they saw it as uh, their path to a better life and, you know, wanted us on, on that same path. So, you know, I, I grew up in a household where homework came first and, you know, my parents were pleased with, with good grades, but if they weren't perfect, they always wanted to know why. They must have talked to my parents. I still have those nightmares. But you had to, at that point, when did it click that you had such a love of learning? Because now it's kind of full circle that you're providing it back as a teacher for students. When did it click that this was some path you wanted to go down? You know, I, um, I, 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 I've always loved being in school. I love learning. And, you know, one of the things I love about being a professor is that the learning doesn't stop. So it's not like you move to the other side of the room and then you're just sharing what you learned as a student. It's you get to keep being in this environment where you're constantly reading interesting things and encountering people who know things you don't. And so you, you kind of get to be a student perpetually. And so I kind of loved it so much I never wanted to leave. The first time I took the idea of being a professor seriously was at the University of Georgia when I, um, I had a professor who, uh, who had us meeting at 8.30 in the morning, which for a college student seemed absurdly early. And then I, and then I figured out that what he was doing was he was dropping his daughter off at school coming, teaching his classes, doing his research, uh, uh, and then leaving to pick his daughter up from school. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, that sounds like a pretty good life, actually. Maybe I should give, give some thought to making a, a career out of this. If I sat with your students and sent you to get coffee, how would they describe you as a person and as a teacher? Oh, that's a really, um, it's a really 
Interesting question. So I think, you know, we give our students course evaluations at the end of each semester. And um, I'm always looking for two things. One is when I'm teaching a philosophy class, there's a, there's a little line on the Michigan evaluations that says I've learned to solve problems in this field. And I always tell my students, my philosophy students, not necessarily the ones in a law class, but I tell the philosophy students, boy, I hope you don't give me good marks on that. Um, you know, I want you to understand why the problems are hard and, and the ways in which people have tried to respond to them and what the problems with those ways are. And maybe we'll make incremental progress. But if you think that, if you think that you've solved the problems, you, you really haven't understood what these courses or this endeavor, um, is about. Uh, but then the second one that I'm always, um, paying attention to is, um, that I forget exactly the wording of it. But, um, you know, there's a question that tries to solicit the student's view on whether the, the professor um, likes teaching the course, is enthusiastic about the material. And if there's one thing I want to convey, both in my law classes and my philosophy classes, it's I love this stuff. Um, I think it's important. I think that we're asking um, really central questions about what it is to be a person and how to be in the world. Um, things that everyone ought to stop and think about and reflect on. And, um, and I always, when I was a student, I always felt I learned the most from the, from the, from the teachers that had a lot of enthusiasm for their subject matter and could um, help you see what was so engaging about it. So I hope that my students would say that I love the classes that I teach and that, um, uh, and that I want to uh, share that love with them. I think that um, I think they'd also say that I can be a little bit difficult. You know, I teach in the Socratic style of I ask questions and then I question the answers that I get back, and um, and I really think that the the second bit of that, the questioning the answers that people give you with my students, with my um, uh, children, it's a way of getting people to think more deeply than their first reactions. So I, I you know, I, I would like for them to think I'm a little bit difficult in that way. In school, I loved teachers that had passion. It could be about anything, but it would make me passionate. And now that I'm older, I, I can't say I would admit this back then. I love people that challenge my thinking. You know, and in our world, if it was a basketball play lesson, I would ask them later to re rerun the play. And then I would say, are you sure? And they would have to think and go through the mind and, it's trying to get what else have you thought about everything. But let me maybe, and this might apply to both, but probably applies to your philosophy class. So there's a lot of material and books that we all read, but there's so much real life. Can you talk about the balance in education of experience, real life experience versus what we're reading in books? So one of the ways that I came to write Nasty Bruce and Shore just kind of grew organically out of my teaching, because once I had kids, I realized that um, I was telling stories about them all the time in class, right? So say in one of my philosophy of law classes, we talk about punishment, and I'll have them read a lot of philosophy about punishment, going back hundreds of years. What are the purposes of punishment? Um, uh, what are its justifications? And, you know, if, if I walk into the room and start just with the material that we read, I'll get one level of engagement. But if I walk into the room, I discovered, and I say, hey, 
let me tell you about this misbehavior from one of my kids last night. And let me tell you about like our failed attempt to, to bring him in line or respond to it. What do you think we should have done? What, we should, what should we have been trying to accomplish? Immediately, the room would come alive. Right? People like to think about kids and the crazy things they do. But it also made the question, what's the purpose of punishment relatable? in a way that, you know, sometimes these abstract texts um, make it more difficult to see what's at stake in the conversation. And then once we sort of talked through these situations that were familiar, then we could turn to the work that philosophers were doing to try and deepen our understanding. So I'm constantly um, searching, whether it's in this, this popular writing like Nasty, Brutish, and Short, or in my teaching, What's the story I can tell people or what's the real life situation that they might be familiar with that raises some of these issues that shows them what's at stake? And, and when I watch my kids sometimes frustrated with school, I think it's partly because their, their teachers aren't doing enough of that. They're perplexed as to why this say this math might be useful. Um, and, uh, you know, they might need, um, a visit from, an engineer who shows them how they can use that kind of math to solve a problem or a computer program or whatever it is. But, you know, a lot of these things, a lot of things that my kids care about and like in the world actually depend on some of the skills that their teachers are trying to teach them, but they don't always um, manage to, um, to match that up for them. And it's, it's so unique that every student, even at Michigan or wherever, has all different walks life and different experiences. I remember this is an elementary, my son telling me a project. There was a picture of a fridge, open door with one or two items in it. And they said, what do you think? And you had to write yours down, then a group at your table, then the whole class. But, you know, some people would say, oh, they have to go grocery shopping or they need a new fridge. They just bought a fridge or they're wealthy that they go out to eat a lot or they're really, really poor, and that's all they have. Mm. But when you can get so many unique experiences, it probably makes your class just so much more interesting. And um, I, I, I want to touch a little bit on the book because when I jumped in the book, it's not, to me, it's more than philosophy. It was almost a parenting guide in communication. Um, and how dad talks to his boys and more importantly, listens like a lot of my beliefs were because that's what I was told to believe, you know, at the dinner table. We we like the New York Yankees. We, uh, you know, we do chores on Sunday or Saturday. We rest on Sunday. Did you know when you were writing this that it kind of became a parenting guide in a way? You know, I'm married to a social worker um, who has expertise in child development, and she, she would like to remind me as I was writing that I was not an expert in parenting, um, which, I, which I think is true. It's just, um, you know, and my kids, I'm sure, would be happy to come upstairs and describe my foibles as a parent. So I really think of myself as having one trick to offer. It's the trick that you highlight, which is um, to listen to kids and to take them take them seriously, to take their questions and their curiosities seriously, to take their answers seriously, to treat them as um, the sophisticated thinkers that I think they are. Um, so, you know, I, I hope to do two things with the book. One is 
um, to invite people to recognize that kid, kids are interested in philosophical questions and they have uh, a capacity that a lot of adults are missing um, to think in ways that are really creative and clever and much more deep than we tend to give them credit for. I'm also hoping to use the kids, as I was saying before, as I do with my class, to kind of capture adult minds, to say, hey, maybe I want to get back to wondering about some of these questions that I had as a kid or questioning some of the things that I take for granted. So, so the, I think of the book as kind of working in both directions. Um, you know, I'd love it if, if the people who read it both engage the kids different, the kids in their life a little bit differently than they do, um, and then maybe also, um, you know, find themselves thinking about the world a little bit differently too. Scott, first of all, I, I love the title of the book. It brought me back to my political philosophy classes in college. So immediately thinking Hobbes, Locke, you know, all the... You know, all the different uh, writers that we had to study. Um, there was a quote in the book that really jumped out to me uh, in which it says, every kid is a philosopher. They stop when they grow up. Mm. How do You just kind of answered the question for me. How do we encourage our kids to continue asking questions, to question authority in a respectful way, uh, as you talked about in the book, and it, it still maintain a sense of freedom versus just giving in to maybe uh, a set of philosophical ideas or thoughts that maybe just aren't well, well, well grounded. Yeah. So um, let's just, just back up a minute. So the, the research shows that between ages, say like three and seven kids are spontaneously interested in philosophical questions. They raise them on their own. They try to answer them. And then around eight, nine, certainly by like 12 or 13, the sort of spontaneous forays into philosophy um, are disappearing. And I think we have to think about why that is in order to understand what we can do about it. I think the main reason, or I think two reasons really, one is that, um, you know, as kids age, they start to learn more about um, what the standard explanations of things are. They're not as puzzled by the world as they once were, right? Like Jeff says, you know, adults have told them what to think and have communicated what they think is worth spending time on and what they think is not, right? The other thing I think that's going on for lots of kids who are becoming adolescents is when they were younger, they didn't care much about what other people thought about them. They weren't worried about seeming silly. I like to say silly is the business that little kids are in. Um, and, and, they're, and they're not worried about getting things wrong. Um, they get things wrong all the time. But when you're an adolescent, you know, you do worry about seeming silly among your peers. And you, you do worry about um, being caught out with an answer that's wrong. And so I think kids are probably still interested in these deeper questions, but they, they keep it to themselves uh, quite often. So how can, we, how can we change that? I think a variety of things. One is um, that if you show that you are interested in kids' views and interested in the kinds of questions they have, I think you can sustain their um, curiosity longer. Um, and, um, and, you know, so I think part of it is you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask my, my, my kids, Hey, you know, I was having this conversation with a student at work today and they were confused about this. What do you think? Um, treat them like a serious interlocutor. Like I might take your answer and I might share it with my students or share it with my colleagues. Right. So I think, um, uh, you know, um, that's one way is just to engage them and take them seriously. Another thing I think would be wonderful in, in many other parts of the world, Philosophy is a part of um, like the equivalent of K to 12 education. And, you know, I think if we created a space, we said, hey, here's what we do 
when we read hubs or read lock, and here's why we do this, and we try ideas out, and we might be wrong, we ask silly questions. We ask, what would the world be like if there's no government at all? And we try and think that through and try and think about, you know, uh, what we want government to be able to do. I think that, you know, if, if we um, taught kids what philosophy was and made a space for it, we might um, hold on to, uh, to their abilities a little bit longer. I know there's there's probably some opinions out there that think that philosophy has just basically become um, just academia, that there's no real life or real world applications uh, to philosophy, and yet you see a huge interest now in stoicism, you know, with with the books and and you know uh, content that's come out. What are your what are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, so um, I think that it's uh, it's interesting. It's not a surprise that there's been this renaissance of interest in Stoicism because the Stoics um, uh, were concerned with, among other things, a set of questions about how to be in the world and especially how to be in the world when things are hard um, and maybe not going your way. And so I think that um, there's a lot of wisdom in, uh, in Stoic writings and people like Ryan Holiday and others are doing a terrific job in um, in in uh, bringing those lessons to a wider audience, I think that um, that philosophy can speak to a lot more questions than um, than the Stoics um, are speaking to. And part of the reason I wrote Nasty Bruce and Short is because I you know I had these conversations when I was meeting with various publishers, and one of them said, "Hey, you know, it would be great is if we had a book that was going to explain." Aristotle and Kant and Hobbes, so that when you go to a cocktail party, you feel like you know all this. And I said, no, 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 there are already books like that. What I want to do is show people that philosophy is alive, that it's happening today. There are probably more philosophers working today in the world than there ever have been before. And some of them are, are doing super cool things that are relevant to our lives. So just to give one example, there's a chapter on sex, gender, and sports where I write about Angela Schneider, who was an Olympic silver medalist in rowing and then became a philosopher of sports. And she writes about women's sports and why it's important that we have women's sports and support them. And I think her work is uh, super cool and super interesting and super important. And she's just one of, you know, dozens of contemporary philosophers that are, that can help us understand the world we live in better. And so I hope that in addition to going back to this ancient wisdom, we can listen to the philosophers among us today. No, that's great. And and I know that, you know, it seems like there's, you know, there's the ancient philosophers that we often talk about, you know, in, in, in the classroom, in the, in the university, but there's also modern philosophers who are writing and contributing. So if someone were to start a philosophical journey, where would you have them start? Let, I guess maybe let's start, you know, with Socrates and, and just work our way to present. Who are some of the, uh, who are some of the ones, if you had to summarize who would be the ones yeah. that you would kind of start with and, and really what is their importance to what I'm doing on a day to day or what we do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I might want to resist the question um, or resist that way of thinking about the question. You know, I certainly took, and it was a wonderful class. I took an introduction to philosophy class that was organized in just the way you say, um, you know, we read Plato first and, um, I think it was uh, Whitehead who quipped that all philosophy is footnotes to Plato, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but um, Plato is actually a great place to start because um, the dialogues that he wrote are like, they read like a story. 
Um, and so, you know, like, and, and the stories are sometimes good enough. I've read them, read them with my kids, you know, the story when, um, you know, Socrates has been sentenced to death and he's trying to decide whether he should take his friend up on his offer to escape prison. That's kind of a dramatic, dramatic story. And it's, but it's actually like a meditation on the purposes of law and whether we're obligated to obey the law, even when it's not going our way. So you could start with Plato and then you could read Aristotle and you could work your way up, you know, through, um, through contemporary philosophers and branch out to other parts of the world, um, you know, read the Zhangji. But I, um, but I actually think that, um, you know, the way to do this is actually um, to find the topics that engage you and then look for, for philosophers who are writing about those topics. And, and there's philosophy about everything. So I'm reading actually right now um, a book by a philosopher named uh, Alvin Noe, um, I think it's called Infinite Baseball. It's a book about philosophy in baseball. Um, and it's, you know, lots of short essays, um, which turn out to be like, they teach you things about baseball, but they teach you things about so many other areas of the world in surprising ways that he draws out based on the insights that he gets through thinking about baseball. Um, or my, my, uh, my friend, Aaron James, who teaches at UC Irvine, wrote a book years ago called Assholes of Theory. Um, which, which asks the question is like, oh, look, you know, um, assholes are these really important characters in their lives. They make us miserable. They seem to be everywhere nowadays. And he's just trying to think through what is an asshole and why do they buy, bother us so much and how should we deal with them? And it's a fun book to read. It's also a really serious uh, work of philosophy. And so I would say, if you're new to philosophy, don't, don't think I got to go back through the history and work my way forward it may be that you'll get to a point where that's what you want to do. But I, but I think actually the, the thing to do is, you know, if I'm interested in food, there's great philosophy about food. If I'm interested in games, there's philosophy, like whatever it is, um, you know, look for people writing about the, the topics that, that most engage you. When you meet someone on the street or you're sitting next to someone on the plane and they ask you, what do you do for a living? How, how do you, how do you answer that question as a philosopher? Oh, well you, you, uh, you know, you, you know from reading the book that this is a question that makes <laughs> makes me uncomfortable, ties me a little bit in knots, because I'm always afraid to say to a stranger that I'm a philosopher. It doesn't it doesn't really sound like a job. Um, so I usually will just say that I'm a lawyer, and if uh, if I'm talking to another lawyer, then I might say I'm a law professor so that I can pull rank. Um, if I'm talking to a law professor, though, I always tell them I'm a philosopher. <laughs> um, you know, so I've got this little shell game going on where I kind of. Uh, you know, pick whichever job it is that I think can give me uh, the biggest edge in a conversation. But, but you know, I am a philosopher, and I feel astoundingly lucky to live at a time where one can have that as a job. Um, and I, and I, I think of the job as, um, you know, to, to think hard about things that are puzzling in the world, to try and, try and understand why they're puzzling, to look for better ways to understand them or sometimes better ways to do things. And for me, I'm a philosopher of law. Um, you know, the, the topics I think about are philosophical questions related to law. What's it mean to be responsible for something? What's the proper way to punish someone? How do we right wrongs? Those are the kinds of questions that interest me. So, I mean, could you see yourself walking on the streets of Athens, Georgia, walk around and going up to people and asking them questions? What is life? What is love? <laughs> You know, um, my children will say that I, I do this to them, that I just, you know, show up with, uh, show up, you know, like 
show up at the dinner table and say, hey, what do you guys think love is? So I, I don't tend to do that. Um, I don't tend to do that with strangers, but you don't have to know me very much at all, right? If, if we've been introduced, you're at risk of getting asked a question like that. Scott, that's great. I want to get back to uh, great philosophers. You know, we talk Plato, Socrates, but I want to focus on Rex and Hank, mm. uh, you know, who may go down the book someday. Take me through the process. Did you know you wanted to do it from their point of view? And what did they think about dad writing a book where they were the stars? So the, the, the book came uh, about, as I said before, just like first, I, I was talking about my kids a lot when I was teaching, but then I was giving an academic presentation and I was having trouble getting people to understand the point I was making. And I said, hey, let me tell you this story about Hank and the arguments he had. It's not actually in this book. I'm saving it for something else. Arguments that Hank and I have had about the rules in our house, particularly the rules about whether you have to try all the food on your plate at dinner. And, uh, you know, telling that story helped. And, you know, immediately, you know, my colleagues saw the point I was trying to make and we had a good conversation about it. And then I started remembering that I had all these other stories about my boys. And I thought, well, maybe there's a book here. Maybe I can use these conversations with my kids or the questions my kid ask, kids ask or the crazy things they do to raise these questions in philosophy that I would then explore in conversation with my kids. And, um, and my kids have like... Um, uh, it's been a kind of evolution to their attitudes uh, in being the stars of this book. At first, they, they were young when I started the project. So at first, they were just super enthusiastic. They used to squabble over who was going to be in more stories. Um, you know, now I think they've got, um, and I, I sort of knew there would be an evolution to this. I think they've got a slightly um, more um, nuanced relationship to it. They, they both still um, appreciate the book and, um, uh, you know, are um, glad to share these stories with other folks, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they have, um, uh, they, they've reached the kind of, um, point where they're, they're fed up with being involved in book promotion. So I used to be able to get them to, you know, pop it, pop into conversations like this or, um, or, you know, go to an event with me. Um, but, but I think they think, aren't, aren't we done with that already, dad? Well, rumor is Hank wants top billing. He wants to be first. It's not Rex and Hank. Hank wants to go first. And uh, oh, did, did, did he? I wouldn't be surprised if he sent you a note to say so. <laughs> I'm on retainer. I, I cannot answer that question at the moment. Yeah. Scott, what's something that you learned from your kids uh, when this book was done? Is there something that you had, you and your wife had that aha moment like, wow. You know, um, I have to think more about the question when the book was done. There are like the the book reports, you know, several conversations where I had kinds of aha moments in just the the course of conversation with my kids, even when they were little. So um, the one that always stands out the most to me is the last chapter here is about God. And when Rex was four, he asked if God was real, and I said, "Well, what do you think?" And he said. I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. And it came out kind of that crisply, and I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean, buddy? And he said, well, I think that God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And as I explained in the book, that really kind of um, changed the way I think about religion and my relationship to it. I'm Jewish, and I participate in lots of 
um, you know, in rituals, like, you know, observe holidays and we go to synagogue. Rex just had his bar mitzvah. Um, but I don't really believe in God that I think like, like these stories actually happened in the way they're described. And there's this all powerful being, I'm not sure, but I'm skeptical. Um, and I've always wondered why are these rituals important to me if I don't you necessarily have the beliefs that go with them. And Rex helped me appreciate that just in the way there can be value in pretend play for kids, there can be a kind of value in pretending even as, even as adults. And I, I get so much out of the um, our, our um, participation in these religious practices. They give me a kind of structure for um, marking important life events and for gathering on a regular basis with family and friends to share holidays and they connect me um, to a community, not just here now, but also in the past. So, um, you know, he helped me uh, appreciate that, um, that there was um, a way of, of making sense and even enriching my own participation in this part of life. And, and that's one thing I want people to understand is that you can learn something in a conversation with a four-year-old. Um, you may think that you've got all the knowledge and they're waiting for you to pour in, pour it into them. Um, but that's an impoverished picture of what these relationships can be like. If you, if you're open-minded and really take your kids seriously, they might change the way you think about the world. You know, I think my brother and I may have set a record for asking my parents, why, Hmm. why, why? And eventually we got, because I said so, you know, that was kind of the answer. When I read the book, Scott, it made me reflect. There's an old Harry Chapin song called Flowers Are Red. And you can look it up. It's Flowers Are Red. It's students in an art class in school and green leaves are green. That's the way these always have been seen because the students wanted to paint the flowers blue and the green grass wasn't going to be green. Um, Layson and I talk often about investing in kids because they're our leaders. They're, they're so much, they're, they're really the future, but you've jump-started your kids. Have you seen like young kids when they're with their buddies, that trickle down effect already of them asking questions instead of, you know, uh, you know, about the football game last night of them asking different questions. Yeah, actually, um, uh, one of my favorite stories that comes to uh, comes up in the conclusion of the book. There's a, like a conclusion called like "How to Raise a Philosopher." Rex came home one day from elementary school, and he said that he'd asked his friend James, um, you know, uh, you know, whether his locker would still be his locker if they changed the door on it. And then, well, well he says, "Well, yeah, it'd just be a different door." So, well, what if they change the box that the door is on? Um, and what he was what he was doing in his own way was he's recreating this ancient philosophical puzzle that's better than known as the ship of Theseus. So there the story is the ship of Theseus is in the port in Athens and people come to see it because they're honoring Theseus. But when a board rots, they take it off and replace it. And over the centuries, they eventually have replaced every board on the ship. And then people start to wonder, well, is that still the ship of Theseus? And Rex, um, you know, with his friend asking these questions about his locker um, had sort of translated the puzzle into um, into uh, the 
into turn like into into part of his life you know this thing he interacts with every day and presented it to his friend and they had a really good conversation about it and then i'll do it again we've got it we've got a basketball uh podcast going here pick your favorite team right and think about how players get swapped in and out every year right and and ask what is it that makes you know the atlanta hawks the atlanta hawks right um it's hard to answer these questions about identity. It's hard to say what makes, you know, Laysen Laysen over, uh, over an extended period of time. And, uh, and I thought it was super cool that, that, you know, Rex heard about these problems at home and started presenting them to his friends. Without giving away secrets, is there a topic you wish you had included in the book? So, um, you know, I, some of the most serious philosophical questions, serious philosophical conversations that I've had with my kids over the years have been about death. Um, I think that, you know, at, at first little kids, when they hear about it, they're just trying to wrap their heads around it, um, what it is, but then also right the anxiety that can come with it. And then as they get older, they may experience the loss of, loved ones and start to think about their own mortality and the mortality of people that they care about. And um, it's not that I, I regret not having written about that in this book because I'm, I'm hoping to write another book that's going to deal, uh, it's going to deal with some of these, uh, some of these um, more difficult, um, perhaps somewhat darker themes. Um, but I think that that's um, a kind of gap, right? Like that the book presents um, a lot of the kinds of, philosophical questions that arise in parenting, questions about authority and questions about punishment and revenge and questions about God. And it doesn't talk about death in, in part because I, I kind of held back a little bit um, knowing that, uh, that I might want to uh, dedicate an entire, entire book to some of those, some of those questions. We got inside <laughs> scoop there. I have one more for you. What's one thing you would most like to change about the world? Oh, one thing I would most like to, wow. Um, so uh, maybe I'm thinking about this because we just had an election, but, um, you know, I didn't used to worry 20 years ago that, um, that our elections, um, that, that, that people might try to overturn the results of our elections or, or wouldn't, you know, honor the principle that, uh, you know, the, the person who gets the most votes wins. And, um, and, I, and, and some people um, in our country, I think, have started to think it's more important that they hold on to power um, than that we have a democracy. And, um, you know, partly growing out of my, um, my legal work, I, I think that um, having a democracy and, and making decisions together is, is much more important than getting them right um, most of the time. Um, that, um, and so I think that, uh, you know, restoring, um, kind of widespread commitment to the importance of democracy and the importance of free and fair elections would be where I would start. Scott, Jeff mentioned at the, uh, at the introduction to the podcast that you were fortunate to, to be able to clerk for, uh, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Talk about that experience. First thing I want to know is how do you, how does one get to be a clerk uh, at the Supreme Court? The the process and the experience of being in that that institution and working for someone who we, who is just so special and and the 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 accomplishments that she's had in the legal world. 
So the process um, re requires a lot of luck. <laughs> um, you know, you need to do well in law school, and then the justices um, hire um, their clerks from the pool of people that have clerked for lower court judges. They want somebody who's had some experience doing that kind of job. So you need to do well in law school, and then uh, and then clerk for another, usually federal judge, and then you can apply. And then you apply to the justices, the Supreme Court, and uh, you know. But Justice Ginsburg would get hundreds of applications every year, and so different justices do it in different ways. She tended to look to the advice of other judges or um, the deans of law schools whose opinions she valued. She might say, "Can you recommend a few people for me to interview?" So, um, you know, I was lucky to to be working for a judge whose opinion she valued, and he recommended me and. And she had me in in for an interview, and, and that all uh, and that all went well and worked out. It was one of the great honors of my life that it did because she's really quite extraordinary. And I think actually, um, you know, though though she's venerated by so many people now, I think that um, often I think without awareness in how uh, full awareness of how significant she is in American history, because people think of her as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and she was, and she had a big impact on the court and on our law through her work at the court. But before she was ever a judge, um, she was one of the most significant lawyers in American history. She was um, one of the driving forces behind the legal movement for women's equality and for the recognition of um, women's equality in constitutional law. And, you know, I think that she's um, in many ways analogous to Thurgood Marshall, who's another um, justice of the Supreme Court, but who had a tremendous influence between his work as a lawyer and the civil rights movement, and um, and uh, and Ginsburg, I think, had a similar impact. Um, I learned a tremendous amount from her. Uh, she 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 worked her clerks hard. You know, it was not a job. I, I if you if you if you told me it was the best job I ever had, but if you told me I was getting it back tomorrow, I would run far away, because I you know I worked I worked six or seven days a week. Uh, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day when things got to crunch time at the end of the term and they were trying to get all the opinions out. Um, but, uh, you know, I learned a ton both about how the institution works, but also just about being a, being a lawyer and being a person from her. When you worked with her on an opinion, um, you would sit next to her at a table as she would go through um, whatever you drafted for her with a red pen line by line, striking it out, explaining how it could be made better, where you'd went wrong. And so I still have her in my ear when I write today. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I, now I have to ask, and, and we're not, I'm not going to ask you to reveal any names here, but did the other clerks, did y'all ever get together like in a bar, like at the end of the day, it just like... And the other one's like, man, I just can't believe what Justice Thomas has me working on here. Or, you know, how do you maintain kind of the balance of, the, like you said, the the strenuous work, but also, you know, the the levity of kind of keeping the job, you know? Yeah, you know, there are some structural features um, at the court that that kind of encourage that sort of collegiality. So, at least when I was there, I assume it's still happening today. There was a weekly clerk happy hour um, that was at the court, so we didn't have to leave. Um, and the chambers would take turns in one of the courtyards. Um, you know, uh, we'd order in food, and you know, we'd all take a you know an hour or two break on a Thursday evening, and 
uh, and have a drink and eat together. And sometimes the justices would drop by, pretty rarely, actually. Most of the time, it was just the clerks. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 I should say, I, I assume the event is still happening today. I do wonder with, um, you know, some of the conflicts at the court that have spilled over into public view, like the leaking of the, the opinion, I do wonder whether the people that work there are finding it easier um, or more difficult um, to, uh, to maintain those relationships. I think it's important, actually, um, to maintain good relationships with people that you disagree with, even strenuously. And that's another thing I learned from Justice Ginsburg. She was very famously... Um, friendly with Justice Scalia. It was a genuine and deep friendship. They spent time together uh, outside of their work. They shared a love for opera. And, you know, in some circles, she's criticized for that. You know, people that, that, that agree with her jurisprudential views and criticize Justice Scalia's think, you know, you, you shouldn't have these sorts of friendships. But she thought, I think rightly so, that we're here together and we have to make decisions together and um, we can disagree and we can disagree vehemently and we can share our disagreements in writing. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cordial to each other. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't get along. And crucially, like if I hope to persuade him sometimes, I won't all the time, but if I hope to persuade him sometimes that I'm right about things and he's wrong, it's going to be easier for him to hear from me if we have a strong relationship. And again, that's another thing that I think in our kind of toxic media environment has become more difficult for, um, you know, people, people, you know, get lots of likes for sharing their outrage, but that doesn't help build the kinds of relationships we need to build a better society together. Scott, as you know, there's been, there's so many different portrayals of lawyers in the media, uh, books, you, you name it. We'll, we'll get to a few of those here uh, kind of when we have our kind of our fun time. But in your opinion, what makes a good lawyer? Oh, that's a really, that's a really great question. So I think that, um, you know, it depends. A, there's a lot of different ways of being a lawyer. And I think, you know, maybe people who aren't lawyers don't realize just how many different ways there are because you, you form your conception of what a lawyer is from watching lawyers on TV. So you, you imagine that they're in court all the time. Um, but, you know, some lawyers are and some lawyers nearly never set foot in court. So I think there's a, like, you know, uh, you don't have to be eloquent to be a lawyer, but it really helps if you're the kind of lawyer who stands up in court to be able to, uh, to you know, answer questions clearly and concisely. Um, but I do think there's some universal things that are um, skills that lawyers need. They need to be um, curious about the world and uh, and questioning, right? So looking for ways that other people might be wrong, but most importantly, looking for ways that you might be wrong, right? You know, I um, you know I want my students to know uh, you need to fi- you you need to figure out the other side's arguments better than they can. Right. So you can understand the problems with your own argument. Right. You got to be able to see things from every side, Um, uh, not just to question what other people are doing, but to but to strengthen what you're doing. Um, So I think that the curiosity and questioning is important. I think honesty um, and um, integrity are super important as well. I I think that. you know, uh, lawyers, we're told, are supposed to be zealous advocates. And I think sometimes um, that's the role that the system assigns them and it's appropriate for them 
to um, to play that role, but within bounds, right? That one shouldn't be dishonest in the course of doing it. That one should um, uh, approach the job integrity. There's this distinction that legal ethicists talk between helping your client, like the difference between what the law provides and what the law can be made to give is a phrase I really like. And and your your job is to help your client get what the law provides, not to squeeze whatever it can be made to give. And I think some lawyers lose sight of that. Um, and they um, uh, they pursue their jobs in underhanded ways. So I'll, I'll stick with curiosity, um, honesty, and integrity. Jeff, there's so many other questions I could ask here, but I mean, the bottom line is we want our listeners to go get this book and the new book when it comes out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save some questions for the possibly a, another uh, episode down the road. All right. I think that'd be great. Let's, Lacey, you ready to jump into some fun stuff with Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's definitely jump into some to some fun stuff here. Um, yeah, we're just we're just on the topic of lawyers here. So, who, what is your favorite legal TV show movie of all time? Oh wow! Um, so I love my cousin Vinny, obviously. <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know, um, I can't tell, I never know which of like the movies from my generation, younger people are still watching, but if you haven't seen, uh, if you haven't seen my cousin Vinny and actually the courtroom scenes in, in that are pretty good. They're better than, uh, they're more, they're, they're more, I mean, they're absurd sometimes, but they're, they're more true to life than the courtroom scenes in a lot of films and TV shows. So that's what I'll go with. Gotcha. Okay. You recently had an opportunity to, to be interviewed by Alan Alda. What was that like? I mean, because of course we always think Hawkeye Pierce, but I mean, the yeah. man is, a, you know, he, he has a great intellect and a great curiosity. So uh, that was just a blast. It was, um, uh, it was really fun to get out of the blue to find out that Alan Alda had read my book and then even cooler to get the chance to talk to him. The, the kind of warmth and decency that he conveys on screen is also very much who he is in person, but I'll say, if I can use your podcast to make an, ad an advertisement for another, his podcast is called Clear and Vivid, and he's just a really, he's really great at interviewing people. Um, it, you know, he has a, an eclectic mix of people, sometimes his acting friends like Mel Brooks and Goldie Hawn, and then sometimes nobodies like me who've written a book that he found interesting. But when he talks to those folks, um, he asks the questions that you want to ask. So, um, you know, he did an interview with an astronomer named Katie Mack about ways the universe might end. And he was so good at, at asking questions that sort of helped you understand the physics of what she was describing. Um, it was fun to listen to, um, you know, may give, may give you something else to have nightmares about. You know, some of, some of the ways the universe end might end or way in the distant future and won't be our concern, but some of them could happen tomorrow. And you thought, wow, that doesn't sound good. So, um uh, but yeah, I, I really um, enjoyed talking to him, partly because he's just um, uh, so warm and kind. We're going to go ahead and start a very deep philosophical discussion here, and that is over barbecue. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, as, as you can tell by our shapes, Jeff and I definitely love barbecue, although Jeff's in much better shape than I am right now. He's, he's, taking, he's, he's done a good job taking care of himself. Where do you stand on the barbecue wars? Where, 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 where do you line up? 
So I, I have firm views about this, actually. Um, you know, if I, if, I, if I had time to write lots of books, one of them might be about, well, I'm, I'm not sure if it'd be about barbecue or tacos or barbecue and tacos or food and philosophy. But um, I, my favorite, like, American region of barbecue is the area around Austin. So Texas brisket um, and, um, you know, Franklin's La Barbecue or yes. hop in the car and drive to Lockhart. Um, so I, I'm, I'm putting that at the top of the list. Um, you know, second place for me is probably Kansas City, which is like the, the crossroads of barbecue. You're getting kind of a melding of lots of uh, lots of different styles. But Joe's and Arthur Bryan's are dear are dear to my heart. Uh, I once finished an argument uh, in a court of appeals. Um, uh, you know, I was trying I was trying to get out to go to Arthur Bryan's and. And they said, are there any more questions? And I, I almost said out loud, no, because I got to get to Arthur Bryan's. <laughs> and, I, and I just said no. <laughs> but but I, then I did get over to Arthur Bryan's. Um, you know, there's also really, my wife is from Charleston, South Carolina. And I'll just, I want to put in a plug for Rodney Scott's. Yes, yes. Um, as just being the sort of brilliant Carolina barbecue. And then also, actually, Charleston is now an underrated barbecue destination because there's a guy named John Lewis who moved from Austin to Charleston and opened a place there doing Texas-style barbecue. So you can get first-rate Texas-style barbecue and first-rate Carolina barbecue in Charleston. Yes, last time I was in Charleston, I did Rodney Scott's. But I, So it sounds like you and I would stand in the freezing rain at Snow's Barbecue to have a chance to eat what Tootsie cooks. Is that... I? I have never gotten to do it, but if you tell me when, I'll be there with you. <laughs> there we go, Jeff. Time to, time to get the plane warmed up. Yep, we got to get going. <laughs> Scott, how about a long week on a Friday night? What's on the grill and what's in the glass for you? Oh, um, so, um, you know, it depends, who's, it depends who's picking the meal. If Hank is picking the meal, he will choose a cheeseburger above, above everything else. So, um, you know, if, if we're cooking, uh, for Hank, we're making burgers. Um, you know, um, I've been enjoying actually, um, I've moved my, my steak indoors. I got one of those immersion circulators and, you know, like doing like the sous vide, like in a water bath. And then you just like finish it in a cast iron pan. And I got to say like th those things are, are not all that expensive. Now you can get them for under a hundred dollars and you can make a perfectly cooked steak every time you do it. So, uh, so maybe that, um, uh, you know, I'm not like a wine connoisseur. Like I like a, gl I like a glass of a glass of red wine, usually like a Cabernet, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't drink enough to have nearly as strong views as I have about barbecue. Okay. I thought you were going to drop a bourbon with us with the steak cause we got sold right away. Oh, this has been fun. All right. Let's. I'm going to ask you, Scott, we have three quick hitters, but okay. pick a number from 1 to 25. Uh, 23. Okay. What's your favorite ride at the carnival? Oh, um, you know, I, um, I, I'm, I'm like 100% not a roller coaster person. Um, I like motion sickness easily for me. And actually I'm married to not a roller coaster person. And I, I feel like that's not an accident. I feel like it's hard to have a, it's hard to have a mixed relationship where one of you likes roller coasters and another one and another one does it. So, so give me something that's moving. Give me, give me like a Ferris wheel, something that's moving, something that's moving a little more slowly. 
All right. Travel in the U.S. or internationally? Internationally. There's so much of the world I haven't seen yet and so much of the world that I haven't eaten yet. So, uh, you know, uh, put me on the road. This is a good one to close with. Do you believe in love at first sight? Um, I, I maybe believe it's, uh, it's possible. I, I met my wife. I, we were young. I was 17 and she was 16 and we met on a bus to summer camp. Um, but as she likes to tell people, it wasn't love at first sight because her dog had bitten her the night before. Um, and, uh, and so she had, she had, um, she had some scars that were healing and, um, you know, uh, so it was, it was, it was love nonetheless, but, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I fell, I fell in love, I fell in love young, young and, uh, and, uh, and, and maybe not in the, in that instant. Um, so, but, but I, but I think, I think it's possible. This Jeff, I have been, to, I have to ask yeah. one more question here. Okay. Fire. Brave, Braves fan. Who's the greatest yeah. Braves brave of all time? Oh, the greatest brave of all time. I mean, it's hard to say anybody other than Hank Aaron, although I think that, you know, Greg Maddox put himself in that, uh, in that conversation. Um, so if I, can, if I can pick a hitter and a pitcher, that's what I'm doing. Ah, good choices. I, I, I grew up an Astros fan, but as soon as we got WTBS, I became a Braves fan. So my first professional baseball game was in Atlanta at the old Fulton County Stadium. Getting to see Dale Murphy play. and I'm just trying to think of some of the names. I remember Dale Murphy in particular. I think, Jeff, I want to say that Joe Torrey was the, the Braves manager. At That's that, right. At that he, point. Dale Murphy was my favorite player growing up, and, and Joe Torrey was a manager in the early, in the early 80s, yeah. We've covered all the gamut tonight. Just think of how deep we've gone tonight. Could you could you could you imagine like, you know, a city out in Paris, you know, it, you know, I was in Paris a couple, you know, a month ago and you're sitting there you're thinking, okay, here's here are the streets for Camus and all the other French philosophers were debating uh, existentialism and different things and could you imagine sitting there talking about barbecue and, and baseball and <laughs> this is great. You know it just it shatters the it shatters the stereotype in some ways. Well, and let me let me just like if I can say one more thing, let me just shatter it further. Oh, yeah. uh, sports fans have philosophical conversations all the time. Oh, doubt. if you if no you doubt. are having an argument about whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time, you are doing philosophy. You're trying to figure out what is greatness in this activity consistent, and to what degree do each of these players um, manifest the the virtues that um, that define basketball. So I think people don't realize the extent to which philosophy is present in their lives and they're doing it naturally. They just, they just don't recognize that, oh, that's what this is. We're just, we're, we're trying to understand the excellences associated. Um, or if you're arguing over wh whether a call was fair or, you know, a friend of mine uh, teaches at Penn wrote a paper about whether the rules should be enforced less strictly at the end of a basketball game. That is something that a lot of basketball fans have views about. It's a philosophical question. And that's what I love about your work, Scott. I think that's what drew Jeff and I both to you is that just that, you know, it's, it's something that you, you've made it real life. You made it every day versus, you know, the dread of going to that introductory philosophy class because I have to take it in order to complete my degree versus I really want to be in here and, and learn about this. Yeah. That's super cool to hear. It's not a book in the library, dusty on the top shelf. Exactly. It's, it's real life and... Scott, again, please let everybody know 
how they can follow you, social media, where they can get the book. So I'm at S. Hershevitz uh, on Twitter. Um, and I think actually the same thing on, uh, on Instagram, but I post more on Twitter. So look for me there. Um, the book is available any place you like to buy books, whether it's, you know, Amazon or your local bookstore, you can go on bookshop.org and you can direct the proceeds to your local bookstore. I think a lot of people don't realize you can do that or Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, there's an ebook and an audio book and, uh, any format you want, you want to engage it's there for you. Well, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been fun. It's been learning. And uh, we just appreciate you so much for coming on and spending time with us tonight. Thank you, guys. I can't tell you, uh, you know, how fun this was for me. I- I've not gotten to do any other interviews in which we've talked about, uh, you know, barbecue and, uh, and basketball. So this is just a blast. Great. Thank you, everybody, and good night. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media.